Welcome to Heroic Hearts Podcast, where we will explore the heroic journeys of St. Joan of Arc and St. Therese of Lisieux to heal, inspire, and re-enchant our own hearts. Hello, hello, everyone. This is Amy with Heroic Hearts saying hello to all our listeners and hello to you, Walter. Hello, Amy. It's great to be here. It on our certainly, final Joan episode. Yes, it certainly is. And it's been it's been a journey for us to get here just to this episode because both you and I have been sick in recent weeks and you <laughs> more so. So Yes. Well, we've we've definitely had our challenges and over the past six months had yes. a lot of physical challenges. But yes, recently was sick, but I am in tip top shape, I think. That is great. So glad to hear it. And um, yeah, so we're here for the final episode of season one. Oh, Jones. Jones, I'm going to say it's Jones' victory. Oh, yes. Yes. Now, other people are going to say, what do you mean? That can't be. But I'm going to fall back on St. Therese. I'll explain that in a little bit. <laughs> well, I, I love I love your positive take on it because there is a temptation to be really down and out in this episode, but we're not going to go there. No, that's where St. Therese comes in. That's where she comes in and, <laughs> and saves us because she has a little bit different perspective on it. So, Oh, well, yeah, I can't wait to get to that next season. But let's go ahead and just start with our enchanting moments, shall we? Well, I guess I'll jump in. I, okay. uh, having been uh, sick and, you know, struggling through all these physical, I went for years and never had a single problem. And all of a sudden in the last six months, we had the heart surgery and then the flu and then all these other things. But uh, one of the things that did come to mind is, you know, how joyful I am as I've re recovered. And it just sort of brought to uh, mind how when you do when you do recover there's a certain strength that you get you know when you recover from these 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 struggles and i know there's the old saying that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger but there's a certain amount of truth to 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 that that uh life without these kind of struggles you know whether they're physical mental uh, whatever um it, it's difficult to 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 grow so again, we've talked about the fact that enchanting moments are not just chasing butterflies through meadows, that they're about dealing with the real world and transcending the, re, you know, transcending the, the challenges that we have in the real world. So coming out of the, you know, this, this recent illness um, has, has really shown that to me that, you know, I feel, I do, I feel stronger. I, I feel, you know, more, more positive. And that, you know, that that's a good thing. So I'm going to call that an enchanting moment. Great. And I love how you maintain your positivity through the various struggles that, you know, have presented themselves in, in your life these last few months. It's been a real encouragement for me and a real inspiration. And what about you? <laughs> well, okay. So my enchanting moment, of course, now it, it's, I'm going back a couple of weeks because that's that's been the duration of uh, our you know the break that we had uh, as as we were both um, going through these various illnesses. But it was when I finished reading the book Saint Joan of Arc or the Personal Recollections of Saint Joan of Arc that we're reading by Mark Twain, and it was on a Sunday evening. And I was feeling well, I was feeling down. I'll say it. I was feeling down because Mark Twain. I don't think is able to have the same perspective 
on Joan's um, final martyrdom that that we might have in the church. So I was feeling sad for for Joan and for how the story ended. And then I walked out onto my balcony and it was at night and I was I was suddenly struck with the fact that well, I couldn't see the moon at first when I was expecting to because it had been a full moon. And then I realized we were having a, a, a lunar eclipse and not only a lunar eclipse, but I think they called it the, um, I don't know, it was a blood moon and a right. super moon and a, and a lunar eclipse. And it was all these amazing things at once. And it, I, it was unexpected because I hadn't actually been tracking the fact that, that, that it was going to happen, that celestial event. And so <laughs> it was really just uh, just a marvelous experience of um just the, the the beauty in the world and um but then also like it because it was an eclipse it also sort of mirrored my mood at the moment um but it was <laughs> yeah i think it was mostly the surprise that that I, that was so enchanting for me so yeah and there's still something <laughs> transcendent about transcendent yeah. about that yeah, our our experience was a little bit different. We had to go out and drive around looking for it. <laughs> oh goodness, I had just a perfect. <laughs> oh, I had a perfect view, so I'm I'm very grateful for that. My my house just happens to face in the exact perfect location, oh, so <laughs> direction. That's nice. All right. Um, okay, Walter. Well, I don't even remember whose turn it is to do the prayer, but um, how about what? you do it? I think oh, I did it last aw. time. Okay, I will do it. <laughs> In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The prayer of the heroic hearts, O sacred heart of Jesus, form in us missionary hearts, hearts that burn to spread your faith, heroic hearts of the cross, wanting always and everywhere to bear witness to you. Make us ready to suffer to show our love. And like our sisters, St. Joan of Arc and St. Therese, grant us the desire to conquer for you all the hearts of the universe. In the name of the Father, and Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you, Amy. Oh, my pleasure. Well, Walter, why don't you share with us your reflective question? Because it's really getting to um, it's getting to the heart of what we've been doing with this in this season, um, following in the footsteps of Saint Joan. And, and I'd like our listeners to reflect on this as they're as as we go through the um, our discussion today. Yeah, my uh, really what I'm asking, and you kind of hit on it in the beginning, is we as we sort of finish up the story of, of St. Joan is really to ask the listener to, to really reflect, uh, re reflect on everything that uh, Joan's story means. So as we, you know, come up and, and we look at, you know, wrapping up and, and, and getting to the end of this, this amazing, uh, tragic, inspiring story, to, to spend some time this week reflecting on what, what did that mean? What, what did I just, what did I just come to understand? What was the story and what does the story really mean uh, in, in, in my life? And, and uh, I think it's a good time for that sort of, you know, meta reflection. Oh, yes, I agree. And so my question is going to be in, in that train of thought. So in what ways has this heroic heart's journey with St. Joan opened you up to experiencing transcendence in your life? Can you describe any enchanting moments where you were able to see beyond the dome of oppression? And mm -hmm. we haven't talked about that dome in a little while, but our leaders, our, our listeners will recall that we, um, we kind of opened up with this idea that there's this dome of oppression, which weighs down on our daily existence and sometimes blocks the sun from our view. 
or the moon. <laughs> well, that, that's great. And it's, it's kind of interesting because, um, you know, Joan really represented someone truly fighting the dome of oppression. <laughs> and uh, I mean, literally as in like a dungeon <laughs> yes. dome of, of, of oppression. <laughs> and I think in a, in a, in a very real way, her life represents what we oftentimes feel that we, we feel mentally, emotionally, sometimes physically. Um, and she, she, she really did. I think that's really great to bring that up as part of the concluding meta reflection. Yes. Well, and it's also, that's a, a good segue for us as we, as we look at the final stage of her heroics, heroic heart's journey. So before I do reveal the 12th stage of the journey, it's a good opportunity for us to look back on where we started and how far we've come. So if everyone recalls in the first part of this journey, we found Joan as a young girl living in the ordinary world, which was her quiet village of Domremy in Northeastern France. And it appeared idyllic at first. And we'll, you know, we recall the fairy tree and, and how joyful that was and all her friends and all that. But the reality is that all was not well because the hundred years war had been raging for, well, about that long. And it had caused her people much suffering. Her village was surrounded by the Anglo-Burgundian enemies of France. And the, the future looked very grim for, for France to even continuing, um, to exist as a nation. So it it was it was a very dark time. And then one day, Saint Michael, the archangel, appears to Joan with a divine call from heaven to rescue France and crown the king, the rightful heir to the French throne. So she accepts the call and then after a period of formation of some few years, she sets off on a journey into what we were calling the extraordinary world where she would find allies, face enemies, defeat the English and eventually crown her king. And that was kind of the high point of that story. And so everything was going great. But then instead of being able to take the road back to her village and go back home, she's captured, she's imprisoned, and she's eventually tried by a very unjust court. And so that is the moment that we are at with Joan um, as she faces her last stage of the journey. So this final stage is uh, of the hero's journey is called Return with the Elixir, and it refers to the hero's resurrection and transformation in order to return to the ordinary world, bearing the magical elixir of a new life. So in the heroic journey of St. Joan, we, we're challenged to, to look at that unjust sentence, um, which led to her martyrdom, and to see in it that her heroic sacrifice was actually her final glorious victory. Um, and we can see that with the eyes of faith, but um, but we do have to look at it differently than the world looks at it. And I think that's um, what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, well, there's uh, definitely, we can talk about bringing home the elixir. Uh, and I think you hit the nail on the head that it's, it's not necessarily the way that the world, and I think we should talk a little bit about that, the way the world typically looks at it and the way we look at it through the eyes of faith and particularly through the eyes of our, of our Catholic faith. Um, and, you know, I mentioned uh, St. Therese, who, you know, we'll talk about in the next season, but she really refers to uh, this is a time of great victory for uh, Joan. And, and the listener may wonder, well, what do we really, really mean by that? And so I think it's a good, I think that's really a good challenge for us as we conclude this. Um, yeah. And uh, so... 
we can kind of pick up the the uh, I, I think the the story the listener will remember that you know after Joan's capture and she's eventually sold to the English by the uh, Burgundians who captured her of course uh, England and Bur- Burgundy are in an alliance and she is sold as a very valuable political prisoner so you know we have to we have to recall that she's one of those prisoners that uh, the English they they need to uh, execute her in the right way. She uh, needs to be a villain when she's executed, not yeah, not a she <laughs> right. It's not going to do any good to just execute her or anything like that. Charles has been crowned. He has won the hearts and minds of the people. He was crowned in Reims, which is where all French kings. So he did everything right. Joan did everything right uh, with him. And the English were now all that they're really left with. And this, I think we could relate to it in today's politics or in any area. All they're really left with is how to destroy Charles's reputation. And the best way to destroy his reputation uh, is to destroy Joan of Arc's reputation and to make her out to be a heretic, a witch, an evil person. Her voices were from the devil. Uh, all these kind of things that they have to uh, do in order to cast a deep and, and potentially fatal shadow on Charles's uh, coronation. And so she truly is a victim. Now we're, ta- we're, we're talking about the church and hierarchy of the church. Like this isn't really how we're supposed to view things. <laughs> and uh, so uh, she's, she's taken in and, um, you know, this is purely a political thing from the get-go. The English army is surrounding the um, the proceedings, threatening uh, that it's got to have the right outcome. So how do we do this? Well, we do it through an inquisition. So through the inquisition, the English were insisting then that the uh, inquisition would find Joan guilty of all these heresies. So anyway, we kind of went through all that. And they ended up embarrassing themselves. So it was Joan... 19-year-old Joan uh, against like 60 members of the University of Paris, elite doctors uh, of of the University of Paris. So it's her against this incredible elite intellectual group, and she's embarrassing them. They they cannot make any headway in trying. Her answers are simple. They're honest. They're true. They're Catholic answers they they just can't get her to trip up so what they have to do then they now they go into darkness so the public's been able to witness them humiliating themselves trying to get Joan so now now what we do is we make them private we're not going to allow these to be public anymore and so now they go into to private and uh, they uh, they uh, you know they abuse her in the sense of asking her um, they, they ask her they do rapid fire questions to try to confuse her. And then they, they come back and ask her things she's already answered to see if she'll, you know, mess up and say the wrong thing. They're doing all these things, but she is just too sharp. And I mentioned it last time. It reminds us of when, you know, the Bible tells us, don't worry about what you'll say. You know, the Holy Spirit will give you the, you know, what you need to say. And truly with Joan, I think you could, you could, you could see that. So we, we, we've come up to that, that point then where there's just this extreme frustration um, many of the people there don't want this to happen. 
but they are scared. You have a small group who are tied in politically with England, uh, even though they're French, even though they're Burgundian, they're, they're French. They are tied in with England. They have promises of uh, reward of positions and power if the English were to win. So this this has all the makings of just political power mongering uh, in order to get this done. Uh, you know, Bishop Cochon, who was leading this thing, he's the you know chief villain of the whole trial, and uh, he had promised this would be easy, that they would very quickly wrap this up. And he was being humiliated because they just, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't do it. But anyway, I think Mark Mark Twain gives us a, a humorous chapter on the ways, the different ways that the village people were making fun of Bishop Cochon, uh, which I guess means pig or sounds like the word for pig. So there were quite a number of uh, yeah, actually very close to the word <laughs> pig. So yeah, so, yes. so they were there were effigies of him on, on the you know the village walls, the castle walls. I don't know if that was true, but it was certainly humorous to read. Well, it, it certainly uh, fits the uh, perspective of many people post uh, the ex- execution of Joan. So, you know, and there's there's so many details you can go into. And again, you can find transcripts of, of, the, of the trial, but they're trying to do all these uh, things. She gives many uh, seemingly miraculous answers uh, and, and, and we go on. But, but we come down, though, Amy, uh, in this final stage where they've been unable to They've been unable to do it. So they need to do it the right way, right? Where we're just here to help. We're here because we value your soul. And we're just these these great leaders of the church, blah, blah, blah. And then, oh, they caught her in a heresy. It was supposed to be where we, you know, they look good and they caught the poor girl in a heresy. Well, now they're now they're having to just dig to where it's just obvious that they're having to just to just set her up. And they're, it's kind of like, okay, we, we have to just cheat. We just have to cheat. And right. so there, there is this uh, famous moment toward the end that we didn't get to last time. And that was the famous abjuration of St. Joan at St. Uh, uh, Uan. They got Joan of Arc to abjure and to kind of get, give it up. Which, and, and, and that's kind of a technical legalistic term. So what would what would be to, to deny her, her to to they wanted her to yeah deny her voices admit that this really wasn't what she said it was and that this whole thing was really uh made up that well, that was the goal was to try to get her to you know basically say okay I'll, I'll i'll admit that you know this really you know didn't happen the way that that i said now that may sound funny people may say she went this far she she's she's been so brave she's 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 suffered everything and then at the last minute you think she's going to um abjure now you have to remember too that they were threatening to burn her and uh she did you know obviously fear that fear that greatly but the the scene at saint juan was um is confusing even if you just read different historians, it's extremely confusing. And I think Mark Twain does a good job of trying to relate a little bit about what um, what happened. And so, you know, what you see is that she's asked some questions and we're not really sure what they are. And then they bring her a piece of paper to sign and she signs. But the piece of paper is not what she, the questions that she was given. And you have to remember that Joan's not a literate uh, person. 
And so we don't know what it was that she, we don't know what they said. We don't know what they, she signed, but it wasn't the same document. So the idea would be that they, um, I, I, th I think my best take is that they probably got with Joan and gave her some softball things that she could sort of get out of this with like some just softball, like, look, just, we know that, you know, you, you had these voices and everything, but just, you know, kind of back off a little bit and, you know, we'll let you, we'll let you go and all that kind of thing. So I, my take is they probably softball some things to where she might say, Oh, you know, right. Like I'm not really giving up my, I'm not giving up my, you know, my voices. I'm not giving up anything, but, but I'm, I'm, you know, whatever. And then they slip her and say, okay, we got, we need you to sign this document, but then they slip her a document that's much more devastating. So, and, and they read the document to her, the, the softball document, and then right. you're saying they did the switch. And, and that's the kind of the best that I can take. It's a very confusing moment. Even when you just treat historians have different takes on what happened at this uh, particular thing. But anyway, she technically, they got their abjuration uh, and this is another strange thing, because remember, the English had this set up. I mean, the military was there. They, they had this set up with there's a way this has to go. Uh, we're not talking fair trials. We're talking about reaching an end that we demand and or there's going to be trouble. They the English threw a fit. They uh, there were accusations of traitor to Cochon and to the French. Because they, they thought, knew. because it appeared that St. Joan, well, that she was going to be let off, yes, right? Or appeared, they were, yes. Because promises were made and all of this was sort of in the public purview, even though yes. there was the secret things going on behind the scenes. Right, right. They, they, it appeared she was going to get off. And um, the, the English were quite upset. They were shouting, you know, traitors. And, and Cochon was trying to, you know, say, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. We're going to get her. Uh, that kind of thing. And the other thing that happened too was they had promised Joan, you have to remember there's, uh, we, we have to be careful when we, when we look at um, uh, in, in, the inquisitions, as we mentioned before, uh, the, the punishment in inquisition was, was uh, if, you, if you're sent to a church prison, that's much easier and nicer. Right. So actually, people didn't fear the Inquisition as much as they feared the secular courts, because if you were found guilty of um, of, of some sort of heresy, you'd be sent to a church, which is kind of like being sent to a monastery where you can live out a life of penance. So she was promised that if she did agree to this, that she would be sent to a church prison, uh, a, a church facility where she would be staying with women. It'd be kind of like going to a convent. And she would live out her life of penance with women, you know, like in a convent. Well, did they do that? No, they lied. So as soon as she um, supposedly abjured, they sent her right back to the uh, political, the English prison. And so that was, you know, uh, another just sort of, there's just this total confusion around what, what was going on at St. Uen. And um, so she ends up going back. The English are mad now at the French. Joan's been lied to. She doesn't go to a, you know, a convent with women. She ends up going back to the English prison. And uh, so then what do they do? 
Now they have to set her up. So they set her up with the famous men's clothes. So one of the things she had to do was uh, to um, agree that she would not, you know, wear men's, you know, clothing uh, anymore, which obviously in prison suited her well because she could be strapped up, you know, tightly. I mean, you, you needed protection as much protection as for, you could for her, for her modesty for, for modesty and just physical protection in yeah. case, uh, even though the uh, wife of the Duke of Burgundy had threatened the English, if they did anything to her, but she, she had agreed. Now she wakes up in the morning and instead of her, uh, ladies clothes, her dress, they've removed it and they left her nothing there, but her men's clothes. So what's she supposed to do just to get up and have no clothes uh, so she has to dress. So she she has to dress in her men's clothes because they purposely took her clothes and, and, and left her only. And then when she did that, they said, oh, you relapsed. Joan relapsed. Oh, no, we finally got her. She relapsed. She's a relapsed heretic and a relapsed heretic. Now, they get handed over to the civil authorities. And what do civil authorities do with relapsed, unrepentant heretics? They burn them at the stake. And so the church hands over Joan to the English as a relapsed heretic. It's, I mean, it's, maybe they, they just had to just force it. It's really it's, stunning. It's stunning the level of of villainy that that Bishop Cashon sunk to in order to get the outcome that he wanted, that he had been so confident in uh, from the beginning. But I, one just wonders at the state of his soul at that time, how I, I know we're, we're not supposed to, but how, how could you sink to such treachery, such obvious treachery? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, and by the way, he, I, I always find this somewhat remarkable. He died in a barber chair, uh, some years later. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. And, um, I guess there's a lot of, um, and he, and he, I believe he had been sent to be the Bishop of Lisieux, by the way. Oh my. So, <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, so there's quite a, there's quite a story there, but you know, it's interesting, Amy, you talk about that, you know, let's kind of get to that point of the end, which was really, really sad. Cause I want to kind of, you know, bring up that point about what had to be going through their minds of somebody like Koshon and other people. Um, but you know, one, one of the, here's okay. Let's go to the mind of Koshon. Here's a question that has, uh, challenged people throughout the centuries. She was offered the Eucharist prior to her being executed at the stake. Mm -hmm. Now, the question is, if you're a relapsed heretic, why are you being offered the Eucharist? And this came up, uh, this came up in the trial of rehabilitation. It's come up over the centuries. So Bishop Cochon, if she's really a relapsed heretic, wow. why do you offer her the Eucharist because a relapse, a heretic shouldn't, shouldn't be partaking of the Eucharist. That was a, that was point number one that raised, you know, a number of, of, of eyebrows. And uh, then when they uh, took her out, and this is what I think is so beautiful because I, I've read various stories. Um, but Joan, and I'm kind of collecting a number of different stories and documentaries and things, but Joan on her way. Now, Amy, imagine how you've been treated. I don't know about you. I would have a little bit of a grudge. 
I probably would have a little bit of a bad attitude. Um, mm, certainly. Uh, it would be hard that, not to. <laughs> yeah. Well, Joan, you know what she does is she's being taken to the stake. She's being taken to be burned by the civil authorities who the church has handed her over to. And what does she do? She um, forgives everyone and she asks everyone to forgive her for anything that she did. Wow. That's a, that is a remarkable, that's a saint. That's a saint. <laughs> that, that's a saint. That's not a, that's not a Walter. <laughs> uh, that That's, I don't know what Walter would do, but uh, anyway, she forgives them publicly and she asks for forgiveness for anything she's done. And when she is burned at the stake, um, she, now, Mark Twain claims she she did say to Bishop Cochon, uh, Bishop, I die, you know, I die by you. In other words, mm -hmm. I'm dying yes. by your hand. Yes. She, she did say that. But the stories you read, uh, Twain says that was the last thing she said. But I believe in reality, when you read a lot of other histories, the last thing that Joan did was cry out the name of Jesus. Yes. And I've often read it. There would be three times, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. So I've read stories where Joan as the stake was burning, she was calling out to her heavenly helpers, to the angels and the saints. And then mm -hmm. at the very end, the last thing she cried out was Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And again, to your point, Amy, about how they felt about it. Now, Koshon, uh, whatever about uh, him, but one of the representatives of the uh, emissaries of the King of England who was there witnessing the execution broke down in tears and cried and said, we are all doomed. We have burned a saint. So there definitely was, I mean, it, it was this chaotic moment when she died where mm -hmm. people suddenly realized what we've done. And I think the way that Joan approached her death had a lot to do with it. She mm -hmm. didn't go up as a belligerent, angry, uh, I, you know, my people are going to come and kill you. N none of the stuff that most normally people would do. She, she really, she was a saint. So she I, was, she I, was meek. Like, like one imagines Jesus was. Yes. On, on I, the for, I forgive yeah. you all. I ask you to forgive me. I go to the stake and who do I cry out to as this relapsed heretic? I cry <laughs> out Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And so, yes, the French there or the English representative, broke down, said mm -hmm. we were doomed. We have, uh, we've uh, uh, killed a saint. We burned a, sta a saint. And a couple of other st uh, stories too that you see in the books. And I tend to- well, What about the one in uh, Mark Twain where it's, it sounds like the people began to sing a litany of the saints as she was on her way to her death? It, yeah, and I, I, don't, I don't know if that uh -huh. uh, happened, but those kind of things were happening. You know, one of the, some of the stories that you- here now one famous one that you hear um, is that her heart would not burn that the the um, person that was executing the executioner actually came up after the execution and was in a state of shock a, a, just a state of now we're talking about a pretty tough guy we're talking about a guy that you just strap on you know and goes and burns people at the stake and uh, he was shaken up and he said that no matter how much tar and everything he put he said her heart would not burn and and one of the things they wanted to do is make sure nothing remained of Joan of Arc because they didn't want any 
relics. They didn't want anything that people could honor. Uh, and so everything had to be destroyed, burned, destroyed. And the story is, is that he had to take the heart and throw it into the river. Wow. Because the heart, so Joan of Arc's heart would not, would not burn. And another story, which I love, is an English soldier comes into a bar, goes into a bar and just is getting drunk as he can be. And they, and they, and he was just distraught and they asked him, and he said that when she died, he saw a white dove rise from the flames and fly in the direction of free France. And he literally was drinking himself under the table uh, at, at, at the bar. Th- this is the chaotic, this is the scene of yes. just mass chaos of people realizing they burned a saint, her heart won't burn. I mean, the ex- nobody gets tougher than the executioner. He's distraught. He has to throw it in the river because it won't burn. You've got an you got an English soldier who's drinking himself under the table because he saw a dove come up out of the out of the flames, and so uh, it was it was quite the moment. So when you say, well, what was going through people's minds? Uh, there were a lot of things going through people's uh, minds at that point, and so the sad thing is, Amy, that. The sad thing we don't really think about, I think I have, is that for about a quarter of a century, Joan of Arc was known as a heretic. Mm. Joan of Arc was, I mean, you, I mean, now, okay, let's step back. In Orleans, she was a saint before she died. She was always honored. Yes. She was, uh, she was to them a living saint. The May 8th celebration that they do in Orleans every year uh, began before she was executed. She was still alive. (laughs) They started celebrating it immediately, like the freedom of Orléans. She was a living saint. So there was no doubt about her sanctity in Orléans. That's that's for sure. But um, in Christendom, you know, throughout Christendom, what else would you say? She was convicted by uh, she was convicted by an inquisitional court and um, surely they didn't do anything wrong. And so she was known really throughout Europe, throughout Christendom as a heretic for 20, 20, almost 25 years, for almost a quarter of a century. And that must have pained, it must have pained her family and her village and those well, who loved her. You know who you don't mess with? You don't mess with moms. Uh, that, right. that, and I don't care if it's medieval time or what it is, because her mother, Isabel, uh, had enough of it. And she, she, as a mother, she went to the authorities and she said, I demand a, a, a re- trial. This is my child. This is my child. And I know that this wasn't right. And they honored her. I mean, never, never, never doubt the power of a mother when it comes to those kind of things. And, and, and Charles too, Charles was up in Normandy and the French, you know, he had actually become a pretty decent King, you know, honestly, Uh, he had become a much better King and they had taken back pretty much, I think most all everything, but maybe Calais. And, you know, he kind of had that hanging over his shoulders, uh, over his shoulder too, Amy. He still had this thing that was hanging over him, that she was convicted of heresy. So between the mother, Isabel, and uh, Charles still needed to get this monkey off his back. Um, the never decision... mind the guilt. Never mind the oh, guilt yeah. that one hopes he at least felt. Yeah, never, never mind that. <laughs> 
I just have to get this monkey off my back. Uh, for the, the the poor lady, the poor young girl who literally fought my battles for me and had me crowned. And um, so they, they ended up doing it. They had a, a papal uh, legate, uh, a representative from the papal office who went and they had a retrial. It's called, it's called the uh, trial of rehabilitation of Joan of Arc, you know, 25 years after she was executed. And we, this is where we also learn, and Re- Regine Pernod has a beautiful book on uh, that as well, called Joan of Arc in Her Own Words, uh, which is a follow-up to her book, Joan of Arc. And it, it covers much of the, re- the trial of rehabilitation. And they go through interviews with uh, the people she was around, her friends growing up, the people she fought with. And it's just an amazing story. It's in the trial of rehabilitation where we learned that Dunois was so overtaken by the changing of the wind, if you remember yes. in a previous episode. And he mentions that in the trial of rehabilitation, that it was, he said it was the wind. It was the changing of the wind that Joan said something and the wind changed and all of a sudden everything was okay. And that convinced me, you know, it's just these, these little things. And so and in the end, what they found, Amy, was all these irregularities, documents that had been forged, documents that didn't say what they were supposed to say, uh, documents that had replaced other documents, uh, all sorts of irregularities, which we mentioned in the beginning. They shouldn't have even had it. Cochon shouldn't have even been allowed to do it. She appealed to the Pope, which she should have been allowed to do, and they wouldn't allow it. It's all the Pope's too far away. Well, that's right. not a very good excuse for your right to appeal to the to the Pope. So there, there were just there were just many, many irregularities. And so they they looked at all these and they looked at the testimony of the people. And, and even those that weren't particularly fond of Joan, who had to admit that this was a really special person. This was really a Christian, Catholic Christian young woman. And so the decree came down that this was a terrible mistrial, mis, uh, you know, mistrial. And the final hammer went down and they declared that she was effectively a martyr and the hammer went down or the gavel went down. And I love the words it says the final words of the, uh, either the archbishop or the papal legate was, you know, and so it was. And that is the truth. You oh. know, the basically, <laughs> you know, Yay. she has been exonerated. Her name has been exonerated. She basically died in a grave, grave misjustice in a political trial. And those who did it are, are guilty. Of course, uh, I think a number of them were dead by, by that time. And that she was to be, her name was to be completely cleared. And so it was. And that is the truth. Bam, the Yay. gavel. Down. And so she. Finally, she, justice for Joan. Well, but, and then you, then you have to say, well, then, okay, so was she immediately then declared a saint of the church? Oh, not for about 500 more years, um, because she wasn't made it. She was uh, beatified by Pius X in 1909, and then she was canonized by Benedict XV in 1920, May 16th. And uh, you say, well, why did it take so long uh, for, for that to happen? And, um, you know, I mean, I... I a lot of historians would probably know a lot more than I, I would, but from what I've read and gathered, this was not easy. There's, there were a lot of political issues between England and France for over the centuries. And when you make Joan a saint, you make her a saint of the universal church for everybody, for the English, right. <laughs> uh, as well as, 
as well as the French and the and the Asians and the South Americans and you know saints are saints of the Universal Church. So I believe there were probably a lot of political machinations that were going on, and then finally, and there were uh, there were two miracles that were attributed to Joan's intercession, and uh, so she was finally uh, declared a saint uh, officially. And the interesting thing is, we talked about Saint Therese, which we'll be, we'll be doing in the next uh, season. But I've I've often referenced in this how in, influenced I was by Saint Therese's uh, poetry and plays on Joan of Arc. And how really she became like the hermeneutic for me to understand mm-hmm. uh, Joan. And the interesting thing is, Joan had not been, I think she was venerable uh, at the time, but she had not been canonized when Therese wrote those. Therese actually saw herself as helping Joan in the process of canonization. Well, she may very well have. It yeah. would appear that way by the timing. Yeah. Well, Walter, um, in our, in these last few minutes, would you share with us just how, how we can look at Joan's martyrdom as, as a real, um, victory? Well, this, and this, this goes back to, uh, St. Therese and the way that, you know, I, I say, I've always used her as the, as the hermeneutic, uh, the, the way to understand and interpret, uh, Joan. But when you read her poetry, um, and her, and her plays, she makes a, 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 you know, reference and there's a, there's a wonderful book. You can get the plays of St. Therese. Um, and you know, they've got all sorts of books, but she makes a reference to St. Joan saying that in, in your dungeon, you were more glorious than any earthly King. And now Therese is looking at it from a Catholic redemptive atonement type of, of, you know, the, the, the Catholics offering our suffering in union with Jesus Christ. Um, and she saw Joan as truly a martyr offering her suffering. And that when we offer our suffering, that far outshines any. And Joan, as she literally, Therese literally says that your crown far outshone the scepter of any earthly king. And what Therese is looking at is the way when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't look like an earthly king, did he? He didn't really look like an earthly king. And yet at, at that moment of dying on the cross, and, and he was supremely, that, that, that was the moment of, of glory. That was the moment of unbelievable glory when Christ died for us uh, on, on the cross. So we're not looking at it. If you want to look at it the way the world looks at it, it was horrible, sad. The church is corrupt. And why would anybody be a member of the church because it's so awful and corrupt and look what they did. And it's just awful and makes me sick to look at what they did to Joan. That, yes, that's, that's part of what, what we look at when you look at it through the eyes of the, the world, but through the eyes of someone like Therese, who's looking at it from a point of sanctity and of the true teleological purpose of all this is that Joan died a martyr. And we know that the, the, the church was built on the blood of martyrs. And we know that mar- how important martyrs have been in the church. And she died a martyr. And so Therese says that she, her glory far outshone any of the kings, that, that her, her victory being in Reims and standing next to Charles at this magnificent coronation was nothing, nothing in glory compared to 
being in chains in the dungeon and being mm-hmm. burned at the stake. Now, and if I you, that's, oh, sorry, it's such an important. Can't get that. I think Catholics get that. It depends on where you, how you view the world, right? You know, spiritually and religiously. And because we have so much suffering in the world today, and in recent weeks, there's been some truly horrific stories just happening in the news. It it is helpful to have a message like that and to see that, you know, that, that while we can offer our, up our suffering, um, it, you know, it, we know it doesn't, it doesn't right the injustices, but it, it redeems the suffering by offering it up. And, and that's, that's something that um, when I said, I, I asked the listeners to reflect a little bit on the story. I, I think it's quite challenging I think if you dig deep enough, you have to dig into how Catholics view, you know, the, the, the world and, and, and redemption and atonement versus how other people do. Mm-hmm. Because quite honestly, Amy, for a Catholic, it makes sense. It's tragic, but it makes it makes sense in the same way that the early church martyrs. Right made sense. But to a lot of people who don't have that same understanding, it, 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 it won't have it. And I think that's something that you have to kind of really uh, dig into and and think about. I I think that, I think the teaching on redemptive suffering is really important to being able to hold together one's worldview to include faith and, and philosophy and and all that It, it holds together in the face of horrific suffering, because there's a purpose to it. Whereas in other, let, let's say other um, philosophies or ways of life, let's say, you know, hedonism or, or even stoicism, stoicism tries to handle it by just kind of, you know, putting on a brave face. But even then, then, then it just becomes meaningless, you know, life becomes meaningless in the face of these, of, of these terrible um sufferings. But, but I feel like our faith still helps us to reconcile both the existence of outright evil and a good God and a purpose and meaning in life. Well, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's very good because it's the opposite of a nihilistic view uh, of the world. In fact, I don't have the quote in front of me, but I know you're familiar with it. The quote by uh, GK Chesterton about Joan of, uh, of Arc. We'll have to try to see if we can we yeah, can we post can post that. it, sure. But it was his comparison of Joan to Friedrich uh, Nietzsche. And, um, you know, he made a brilliant observation. He said, you know, Joan beat Nietzsche at his own game. <laughs> you know, that, he, he, that she was, you know, Nietzsche talks about the, you know, the world where God is dead and and the will to power and all that. And, and Chesterton said, you know, Joan was far more terrifying than any Ubermensch of... That sure. Nietzsche, she, was, she was a real warrior, whereas she, Nietzsche she was can only talk thing. about it. Yeah. Yeah. She she was the real thing. And um that she really beat him at his own game. So the the it's the opposite of the nihilistic uh, approach, which is that Joan actually did, you know, more to not just save France, but to benefit the rest of us in the kingdom of God mm-hmm. by what she did in, in that death through through the union with the death and suffering and passion of Jesus Christ. That's right. that's where that's where that uh, cooperative redemptive suffering uh, uh, comes in. 
and it's a very uniquely Catholic uh, uh, perspective, which we've had for from the beginning for two thousand years. And so it, it, it is somewhat challenging. And then I look at I look at you know my own life, and I look at how my life has been transformed through um, not just the stories of Saint Joan, but literally through the relationship with Saint Joan, the the intercession of Saint Joan, Saint Joan's um, you know help. Um, you know, as, as a, as, as a real person, you know, people always love it. People say, well, why do you pray to saints? Because saints are dead. And I'm like, well, who, who said they were dead? Certainly not the Bible doesn't say they're dead. God says, I'm the God of the living, not the dead. Yes. Uh, so I don't know where that, where that comes from, but, um, you know, I look at, I look at my own life and it, how through the intercession of the saints and particularly of St. Joan, that my life has been transformed. So she really has brought the elixir. And I think, I think, Amy, that's what Therese was saying was that death, that martyrdom, that, that was the elixir that was going to carry forward, uh, in, in, you know, and, and, and impact mm. the world in a far greater way than just a, just a political, you know, a political, right. just a political uh, martyr. Wow. And, so and very for me, stuff and a lot to think yeah. about. I think there's just a lot to, I don't have all the answers. I can't explain all the theology. All I can ask is listeners just think about this. Yes. Yes. And, and for me, what I will take away from our journey with Joan is just her, of course, her courage and her decisive action, all that, but also her obedience to her king and and you know king charles is 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 really just kind of the the human element of that it's really her obedience to jesus christ her king that has inspired me and 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 helped me to try to transform my life to be more like that well, well yeah it, very very true and uh, you know people ask about you know the the church because of because of joan and what you just said amy you know i i, I don't like scandals in the church i don't like you know, guess what? There are evil people in the church. Go figure. Um, and sometimes I'm one of them. And, and you know, th that that's the problem. We know that the church is filled with just regular people like us and, and, and all that. And we know the church is capable of what happened to Joan. We saw it happen and you could see it happening today. We, we know that. And, but, to, but to your point, Amy, I would never leave it. I would never leave it because our devotion is to that that form that is much higher that that transcends the awful, terrible human weaknesses that that we all rep that we all represent. And um, you know, so we can we can point fingers at Koshon. He's the one we boo. He's the evil one. Amy, I don't know. You know. Who knows what we would do if we were in in those shoes? Mm -hmm. Would I resist? Uh, would I would I resist the power, the money, the prestige that he was offered? I would love to say, Amy, I would never do that. That you would never find me doing that. Do we know that for sure? We're weak mm -hmm. people. We are weak people, and the church is made up of people like, well, I should say, mm -hmm. us, like me. I don't know about you, <laughs> but the church is made up of people like me. And people like Koshon and people like Joan of Arc, it's made up of the weeds and the and, and the wheat. And so, um, 
it's the church is is a beautiful form. It's the kingdom of God on earth. And yes, just like Jesus said in the Bible, there are weeds and there are wheat. And, you know, the disciples want to know why don't, you know, the, the, the disciples were the same way. They're like, why don't you pull up? Why don't you get rid of all the weeds? Well, if they did, I might hurt some of the wheat. Or when John and James were sitting there and, and they were looking on the hill at one of the unrepentant cities and uh, they wanted to call in an airstrike. <laughs> and say, why don't you just like send fire down and just blow up the whole city? Uh, that's that's kind of how I would feel about things, you know. Um, and Jesus says, no, that's not that's not the way. So, um, yeah, it's a the church is a interesting it's an interesting place, but it's necessary for us in our and, salvation. You know, and we're all on this journey and everyone is kind of at a different place and different times. And so I'm thankful that we have the opportunity opportunity to journey with some really good saints uh, to help us, uh, to help us along. So with that, we have come to the end of season. Oh. I want to thank all of our listeners who hung with us and have encouraged us and for all the great feedback. Um, we hope that this has blessed you and, and given you something for your own life's journey. We're going to take a little break um, before we start up season two, just because uh, we've got, well, I've got some travel coming up and uh, the summer's starting, um, but we will be back with uh, a, a look at St. Teresa's life through a book called Shirt of Flame, right? Shirt of Flame by right. Heather <laughs> by Heather King. I was going to say Shirt of Fire, but no, that's because I'm thinking of St. Joan. Um, Shirt of Flame, Heather King. Go ahead and um, pick that up, start reading it, and we will be back in just a couple of weeks. So, it's a fantastic book, and it will help us discuss <laughs> another great saint. Indeed. Well, Walter, it's been it's been amazing. Thank you for uh, for inviting me into this project, and uh, looking well, forward. Thank to Thank you next for all your hard work, and thank all the <laughs> listeners again. I like Amy said. I hope this uh, provided a blessing for you. And look forward to coming back after the break and talking a little bit about St. Therese. All right. We'll see you soon. Bye now. Bye-bye. So we'll sign off for now, but stick around for Amy reading our closing poem. Thanks for listening. If you want to discover enchantment and adventure with St. Joan and St. Therese, please subscribe to our podcast and follow us at Heroic hearts.com Pied Beauty by Gerard Manley Hopkins Glory be to God for dappled things for skies of couple color as a brinded cow for rose moles all in stipple upon trout that swim fresh firecoal chestnut falls finches wings landscape plotted and pieced Fold, fallow, and plow, and all trades, their gear and tackle and trim. All things counter, original, spare, strange. Whatever is fickle, freckled, who knows how. With swift slow, sweet sour, a dazzle dim. He fathers forth, whose beauty is past change. Praise him. <laughs>